This is episode 241 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by patrons. Listeners just like you sign up to be our patrons and help support our show. They get to contribute directly to programming and access a library of bonus Shakespeare history content, all at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Join us today and access all the bonuses at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Mary Fassell. I'm a professor of the history of medicine at Johns Hopkins University. I'm the author of Vernacular Bodies, about how people thought about reproduction in early modern England, and Long Before Roe, a long history of abortion from antiquity to antibiotics. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. For me, there's a big difference between a commercial fishery and all of the, the dangers and excitements of, of that trade and this recreation that we see emerging into a kind of new prominence in Shakespeare's moment, the sport of angling. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. William Shakespeare mentions fish over 70 times in his plays, including certain kinds of fish, like dwarfish, a fenless fish, and even a dogfish. Types of fish, being a fishmonger, and applying all manner of fish metaphors were a consistent theme in many of Shakespeare's works, which led me to wonder about the role of fishing and fish in Shakespeare's lifetime, for not only the individual who might have gone fishing for their food, but the role of commercial fishing in the economy of England during the 16th and 17th century. Here today to help us explore what kinds of fish were most popular, the representations of angling and fishing in print, and exactly how and where people would have caught fish for Shakespeare's lifetime is our guest and author of The Poetics of Angling in Early Modern England, Myra Wright. Myra E. Wright studies representations of non-human life in medieval and early modern texts. She is the author of The Poetics of Angling in Early Modern England, and her current book project, The Swimming Kind, considers figures of aquatic human bodies in literature before Shakespeare. Myra was born and raised on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Find out more and links to the resources Myra recommends for today's episode, all in the show notes. Hello, Myra. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. What was the fishing industry like for England in Shakespeare's lifetime? I can tell you that for sure, fish was an extraordinarily important dietary staple for Shakespeare and his fellows, that people were eating fish as a matter of course. It was an important local food. And we can see echoes in our own food trends and eating practices of the kind of local diet that would have been common in Shakespeare's moment and in his place. So lots of food from the ocean being eaten and a fair amount of food from freshwater streams as well. And people eating fish as a 
economic expediency. Fish was widely available. Just because it was easy to get, they, that was an, an obvious food choice. Yeah, there's sort of no accident to people people living in the British Isles <laughs> in Shakespeare's period. It has a lot to do with the abundance of good, healthy food on land and in the waterways as well. So we can think about the way that people in Shakespeare's period are really sustained by, by fish, among other food sources indigenous to that area. That certainly makes sense. Now, I've, now you've mentioned that they're going out there and they're fishing for this highly practical purpose of, of wanting something good to eat. But was it also a hobby? I mean, did people go fishing for fun? Definitely. And that, for me, there's a big difference between a commercial fishery and all of the, the dangers and excitements of, of that trade and this recreation that we see emerging into a kind of new prominence in Shakespeare's moment the sport of angling. So people who had time and means and the tools and the knowledge and some property to go wander out around, whether it was their property or somehow land that they had access to, to go and practice this sport. We see that coming more and more into the literature and into a sort of familiarity for early modern people right around Shakespeare's time. Yeah. And that's fishing as a hobby. That's your hanging up a sign on your door, <laughs> gone fishing. You know, that's these are the origins of I'm sport, headed out to the country it. today. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Well, now, when we explore representations of fishing from Shakespeare's lifetime, is it only men who are seen fishing and enjoying the sport of fishing? Or would women have gone out and caught fish as well? It's a really good question. There's a lot of representation of a kind of broy fishing in Shakespeare's period. From the literature that comes before Shakespeare's birth, and even the literature that extends up to Isaac Walton's really important fishing treatise um, in the middle of the 17th century, The Complete Angler. Fishing looks like a really homosocial sport, and it looks like it's something for male enclaves of gentlemanly sorts <laughs> to practice. And it looks like it's exclusive of women. And this isn't really entirely the case because when we look at other representations of the sport that are not necessarily marginal, things like Lady Mary Roth's romance, long, long, long prose romance, the Urania, we see female anglers in relative abundance in that text. And even in Shakespeare's own writing, we have a wonderful image of Cleopatra angling in the company of Antony or even alone without him <laughs> when she's frustrated at not hearing from him and getting bad news about what Anthony is up to. She's thinking about going fishing. Get me my rod, she says. I'm, I'm heading down to the river. It seems like a great way to handle frustration. How, how modern of so. her. That, that fresh air. <laughs> now, where were the most popular sp fishing spots in England for the 16th century? You mentioned needing to have access to a, a stream, obviously, or a pond or someplace where the fish would be. Were there public spaces that would have been, you know, oh, if you want to go fishing, here are the, the places to be? We really don't see angling represented as a sport that just anybody can take up, you know, that anybody can just grab their rod and <laughs> creel and head on down, you know, to some to some park or path and and fish. It's a sport that's protected with a kind of language of 
social class or rank. So there's highly upper class, really elite sort of sport? Yeah, or at least it's figured as something that is is spiritually healthy and that belongs to a gentlemanly a gentlemanly inclination that we don't want in the earliest fishing treatises in English we hear a, a language of not wanting the wrong kind of guy to get the information about where to angle and how to do it so there's this curious pr- protectiveness of the sport <laughs> that might not really jibe with what we think of now well, I can think of more than a few fishermen that don't want their buddies to find out about their fishing holes. So we've carried at least a little bit over to that, I think. That's but- for sure. And to answer your question sort of more fully about where the sport would take place, I think angling is definitely, it marks a distinction between freshwater and saltwater. So we see it emerging as a freshwater sport. And that means that we have this tremendous store of information about various waterways in the British Isles, treatments of these elements in the landscape as as precious for not just the fish that they might carry um, and the, the piscine life that they might sustain, but for all the kinds of biotic phenomena that would be flourishing there. So we hear about really ecosystems, riverbank ecosystems, ponds, lakes, and also about built aquatic environments on estates and big big properties that are owned by <laughs> by famous families so we do also hear about the the creation and maintenance of fish ponds for the purpose of angling would you mind sharing one or two examples of some of these places where we hear about the ecosystems of of these locations are they specific ones that you could give us examples What comes to mind right off the top of my head, and I wish I had it right at hand, maybe I'll even be able to flip to it. There's a beautiful description of the river Boyd in John Dennis's Secrets of Angling, which is the first angling poem in the English tradition. And I think that as it turns out, there are a couple of river Boyds (laughs) or rivers Boyd. And that some research is done by somebody who went before me about which Boyd Dennis is talking about. But there's this wonderful sense that the river itself has a life and that that life proceeds from from somewhere, that the river has a mother, the river is flowing along, following its own course. There's a sort of animation and personification of waterways that's really moving. So the river Boyd, <laughs> the description in in the secrets of angling is just beautiful. And if I stumble upon it, I'll I'll read a little bit of that to you. Oh, thank you. That sounds good. And we can link to this secrets of angling in the show notes today too, so you can read read the full thing and check that out. Now, I saw a 17th century Dutch painting where fishermen were using tridents to catch fish. You know, the full on Little Mermaid king of the ocean trident (laughs) and and they were holding them and just stabbing them into the fish and i was just really taken aback by this and i wanted to ask you were tridents a traditional fishing implement for the 16th century and and if not what kind of tools would they have used to catch fish so folks will be interested i think to look not only at the text of secrets of angling which is wonderful but i'm hoping that They'll be able to take a peek also at the original frontispiece for that poem, which has this great depiction of 
two, they appear to be maybe even rival gentlemen fishers standing on opposite sides of a stream. And one of them is holding a rod. And it seems to me that the other one is holding a kind of circular trap or cage. And we hear about implements of that kind being used in in freshwater ways, in streams, and maybe even in ponds. So tools that are best described as traps. And of course, the rod is what makes it angling, (laughs) uh, the rod and, and line and hook. So we see those kinds of tools being used. And the descriptions in early modern angling manuals are often very elaborate about how how to actually get those tools, how to make them, because fish hooks aren't necessarily already being manufactured as fish hooks, for example. So those are the kinds of tools that we hear about when we're reading about angling as a sport. I haven't seen any description of angling that would include a trident, although it seems to me, and I can't think of a source off the top of my head, it seems to me that spears and clubs of various kinds would be expedient tools and that those are mentioned in some places. I don't think Neptune's trident though sounds like a very practical thing to sling over your shoulder as you're heading down the country lane. Well, I mean, you'd expect Neptune to have the best knowledge on the ocean and how to catch fish there, I would think. So, right and and by contrast, he might be a pretty poor angler. You know, I would think so. With, <laughs> he, he sounds like a net. specialist. <laughs> right, right. He's going to get the tuna, but maybe not the trout. Exactly. So he wouldn't, wouldn't be so helpful in the British Isles. <laughs> in A Winner's Tale, Act 1, Scene 2, Leontes is talking about fishing. And he says, quote, I am angling now, though you perceive me not how I give line, end quote. Myra, help us understand what he's referring to here through the imagery of fishing and and knowledge of angling, as it's called in England. And what does it mean to give line? This is a fascinating and really troubling moment early in the play. Leontes is overwhelmed and increasingly sort of compelled by a terrible jealousy within himself. He is perceiving a friendliness and amity between his wife and his old friend Polixenes. And he's sort of pulled in multiple directions, but increasingly the jealousy is taking over. So Hermione is is trying in a very hospitable and very conventional way to persuade Polixenes to extend his visit to the two of them, to to linger um, with them in their home kingdom and you know, spend more time together. You know, we really want you to stay. And as she carries on um, with this very polite and friendly extension of her invitation, Leontes finds himself really, really disgusted and fearful. And his language is extremely violent. So what Leontes is doing is using an available metaphor of angling, a metaphor that would be familiar to Shakespeare's audience already. Uh, It's an audience that is already thinking about sexual promiscuity in terms of fish and fishing, if that it sounds at all plausible. It happens to be so that often Shakespeare's characters and people in early modern culture in England more generally um, will think about fish when they think about human sexuality and especially human sexuality that's kind of out of bounds or adulterous or 
problematic for whatever whatever reason. So Leontes is letting his wife and Polixenes have a little space. And she says, you know, we're heading off to go walking in the garden. Are you coming along with us? And Leontes says, go ahead. <laughs> and in an aside to us, he says, I'm angling now, though you perceive me not how I give line. The idea is I'm playing along. I'm I'm allowing them this slack, this extra extension of time and space together when really I'm staying in control of the situation. I can pull them back at any moment. But also I'm thinking of my wife here as a slippery creature, um, one who's hard to keep my grasp on. And slipperiness is something Hermione has already spoken about. Did you never slip with anybody else? Have you not slipped in your past, in your lives? Didn't you ever have another crush or <laughs> stumble from your high horse? So slipperiness and a kind of sexual slipperiness, meaning a sort of out-of-bounds behavior, is something they're, they're all thinking of probably in one way or another. For Leontes, it becomes a big problem here as he starts to feel that he might not be the kind of angler who really can catch and hold the fish that he wants. I think understanding the the prevalence of that metaphor of why he would go to that, of it being, you know, it's it's like a major pop culture reference that he's bringing in to, to make his point is, is a very cool thing to be able to see in Shakespeare's play and sort of understand not only the context for the play itself, but where Shakespeare was at when he decided to write that. I think that's pretty exciting. Now, you mentioned earlier The Secrets of Angling by John Dennis as being the first angling poem in the English tradition, but I wonder about manuals for how to fish or how to angle. Were there books or manuals published about fishing during Shakespeare's lifetime that we should know about? Yeah, actually, what's so cool, Cassidy, is that that book, Secrets of Angling, is an instructional book. <laughs> it's a poem. It's very literary, but it, it contains a lot of practical information, a lot of really prescriptive advice for the prospective angler. As much as you would find in, you know, your field and stream magazine or, <laughs> you know, maybe not as precise and certainly not in a North American context, but it is a, an angling manual as well as being this wonderful poetic treatise on the sport I just, more I just love the idea that there was a 16th century field and stream floating around <laughs> in England. That's wonderful. <laughs> Yeah. And Dennis's poem is great because it shows us that actually what makes it a poem is what makes it useful. It's compact. It's too, straight to the point. It uses rhyme. So these pieces of advice are easier to remember. They're organized into a pattern that makes sense to the author and we would hope to the prospective angler. So although it's certainly meant to entertain and be an object of interest for anybody who might come upon it. it. It does contain this practical information. And in that, Dennis is building on an already long tradition of uh, the fishing manual that reaches back to the late medieval period in English um, and further, if we look elsewhere, all the way back to a fishing treatise that was really published close to the advent of print in English and that we have in manuscript form from even earlier, Treatise of Fishing with an Angle. That's a sort of originary piscatorial text for the English tradition. 
Um, and when we get past Shakespeare's lifetime, we come to the big granddaddy of, of angling and angling literature, Isaac Walton with the complete angler in the middle of the 17th century. Which is a fantastic fishing book all by itself and un- unfortunate that it's after Shakespeare's lifetime, I think, because otherwise we would definitely feature it here on our show. Mm-hmm. Now, in addition to these manuals, which obviously we should explore, and I will link to them the best I can in the show notes for today's episode, what are some of your books or resources you would recommend for a listener that finds this topic fascinating but doesn't know where to begin when they want to explore more? What, what would be the great starting point you would point them to? I think, you know, why not extend our attention from Shakespeare's period into um, the middle of the 17th century and look at Isaac Walton's Complete Angler. If you're interested at all in fishing and its um, origins, culturally speaking, then Marjorie Swan's wonderful 2014 edition of The Complete Angler put out by Oxford is a great resource and beautiful book to have on the shelf, (laughs) a very handy edition and so wonderfully researched um, and supported with her, with her editorial apparatus. So that's a gem of a book. And Swan has a new book on the complete angler coming out, I think in June. So that's something to watch for as well. When we think about angling literature, it's really a, a there's a continuation and a legacy and a, a real handing down of knowledge and habits of mind, we could say, from one moment to the other. So we can think of it as an early modern phenomenon. And let's let's try to justify it, including <laughs> Walton on that Shakespeare life. I think that there's no problem with that. We, we know that Walton's contemporaries, some of them were contemporaries of Shakespeare's. So there's wonderful overlap. Certainly. Yeah. That sounds great. We will link to these resources in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you stay tuned for the link for where to find all of those. Now, Myra, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. And I just get one, don't I? Uh (laughs) I'm afraid so. Yes. (laughs) You know, you there are so many wonderful early modern things and medieval things that I would love to to say I would take with me. But when I try to think really frankly about the question, nothing could keep me company like Emily Dickinson's poetry. So the complete poems of Emily Dickinson would allow you to be looking out at, at your new home, <laughs> thinking about the plants and animals around you, thinking about even the geology of this new desert island home <laughs> that you've rather unfortunately probably ended up on but you'd have Emily there with you and her wonderful way of looking both in and out yep Emily Dickinson I can honestly say in close to 250 episodes of asking this questions to guests you are the first guest to have such a wonderful and hopeful outlook about their desert island experience to, to <laughs> immediately go towards this is my my new home and it's so pleasant and I love that about you <laughs> that's just fantastic and of course Emily Dickinson would be an excellent selection for your stay on the desert island a wonderful companion for sure a big book if nothing else you okay. you have a lot to read you have a lot to to deal with yeah so well what's next for you what are you working on now that you're excited about the angling project, uh, my book about angling, is really inspired by being the sister of 
an angler. My brother Harlan is a wonderful, lifelong angler um, on the coast of British Columbia. And I grew up sort of going down to the riverside with him. (laughs) He would fish and I would swim. So I'm not a practicer of this sport. I'm not a practitioner of angling. I'm much more a fish. And the next project has to do with that, with being a swimmer. So I'm working on something called The Swimming Kind, figures of the aquatic human before Shakespeare and wanting to contemplate literary representations of the human body in motion in the water. That is a fascinating topic. We look forward to seeing that come to fruition. Myra Wright, thank you so much for being here this week and taking us through the history of fishing for Shakespeare's lifetime. This was a really fun conversation and I appreciate you sharing the history with us. My great pleasure. Thanks, Cassidy. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you would like to see some visual elements that coordinate with our show, including some of the fronts pieces that Myra mentioned, along with pictures of angling and the 17th century Dutch painting featuring those men fishing with the tridents, all of these extras are packed inside our show notes. It's got bonus history information about our show topic, and there's also links where you can learn more about Myra Wright and her books on the poetics of angling, and you can access the resources she recommends that you use as a starting place if you want to explore angling in Shakespeare's lifetime further. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 241. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP241. If you're a loyal podcast listener here at That Shakespeare Life and you love the history we bring to you each week and you're excited to hear from the amazing guests that we get to talk with on the show, then consider supporting our work by becoming a patron. Patrons get access to sneak peeks of behind-the-scenes extras where you get to know who's coming up next and you even get the opportunity to ask your questions live on the air. I will tell you who's coming up and you can tell me what you'd like me to ask them and your question can be included on an upcoming episode. These are just a few of the benefits of supporting our show. There's also special extras like animated plays, documentary films, and more. Check out all the benefits of being a part of supporting our show and helping us keep that Shakespeare life on the air at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.